Good morning. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name is Jenna Longenecker. I have been attending East Chestnut Street for a little over a year and have been enjoying getting to know this congregation most closely through attending the Sunday School class led by Marilyn and Jay Parrish in the Fellowship Hall. I'm thankful for the opportunity this morning to share with you about my own journey toward anti-racism as well as my hopes for the Mennonite Church. I'll start with a little background information about myself. I grew up here in Lancaster County and graduated from Conestoga Valley High School in 2009. I then attended Eastern Mennonite University and graduated with a degree in art education in 2013. After graduating from EMU, I taught at Harrisonburg High School for a year and then moved to Washington, D.C. for a year, where I taught in a public middle school that was in its first academic year. I now currently teach for Lancaster Mennonite Schools, and I live here in Lancaster City. Of these experiences, the most influential by far in my journey toward anti-racism was my experience teaching at Brookland Middle School in D.C. Most of my students at Brookland were African-American, a demographic with which I had not previously interacted very closely. Growing up in Lancaster County and attending EMU, my settings had been very white. My friends and peers had been white, the adults in my life had been white, the characters in my books, TV shows, and movies, mostly white. Teaching at Brookland was my first experience interacting closely with a group of mostly African-American students, and my first experience being a racial minority. I made so many mistakes that year. In September, I casually called a female student girl. She confronted me, informing me of the way in which the terms girl and boy had been used by white Americans in the past to demean and intimidate African Americans. In October, a student, I had a student express interest in doing a project on the Black Panthers, and I suggested that he focus on a more positive group. The student informed me of the ways in which the Black Panthers had been a very positive group for many African Americans, providing food banks and health clinics to African American communities in need. In the spring, I planned a lesson in which students were to paint a self-portrait, imagining themselves in a different time period, only to realize that imagining themselves in a different time period could be a very painful exercise for African American students, whose histories included slavery, segregation, and oppression. Throughout the year, I made so many mistakes, but I learned so much. At the end of the school year, I deeply struggled with the decision to stay or leave, but ultimately I chose not to return for the following school year. I took a job at LMS and moved back to Lancaster, but my world had been completely changed. My eyes had been opened to a perspective to which I had not previously been privy. I began asking questions I had never asked before. Why hadn't I interacted with many African Americans until that point? What systemic forces had been keeping us apart? Why hadn't the struggles of the African-American community been more visible to me? I began a quest to undo my previous understanding of race in America and develop a new, more complete, more accurate understanding of our country's racial climate. I wanted to know more about the African-American experience, more about the history of racism in our country, and more about the ways in which systemic racism currently pervades our nation. I read books and articles by African-American authors, listened to podcasts hosted by people of color, attended workshops on breaking down racial biases, and participated in the 2017 March for Racial Justice in Washington, D.C. I learned so much, and I am still learning so much, 
Every day I find ways in which I could be a better ally to people of color, ways in which I am complicit in perpetuating racism. But here's what I've come to understand. My experiences in D.C. were deeply spiritual experiences in which the Holy Spirit helped me open my heart and mind to allow room for growth and change. I believe that with help from God, the Mennonite Church, too, can become more aware of the inequalities in our society and the ways in which we participate in racist systems. East Chestnut Street is already experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit. We have chosen to engage in this series, Undoing Racism. From there, if we continue to look to Jesus' life as a model for our own lives, we will find a model for how to address the racial inequalities in our country and in our church. Like Jesus, the Mennonite Church must stand up for those in our society who are oppressed. We must speak truth to power even when it makes us unpopular. My prayer for East Chestnut Street is that is that we think of this Undoing Racism series as a first step toward becoming a more racially inclusive and just church. I pray we do not stop here, but rather continue engaging with the issue, making changes in order to bring God's kingdom to earth. Scripture I'd like to to read for us this morning is from Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as as was his custom. He stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Some uh, translations use the word captives. So he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's more to the scripture, but I won't read the rest of it. Um, I want to focus on this piece because that's the the piece that that, that speaks to me. But before I, I, I share some of my thoughts on that, uh, I also want to remind us that um, when we were made, we were made in the image of God, all of us. So there's that that's connection that we're all in the same place. In Matthew, Jesus exhorts us to love our God with all our heart and soul. And then he says, and you love your neighbor as yourself. I want us to remember those. Those are important in, in anything that we speak about. And then Micah. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord request of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To be honest, the, the word that, that, that captured me in these scriptures and that kept on coming back to me is when, when Jesus said, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives. I'm using the word captives because that's the word I, I remembered and that's the one that, that speaks to me. And I started to think, who are the captives? If you're like me, I always thought of the captives as the ones who are in jail. But then as I was listening more to uh, the stories 
And when we looked at the story of the woman at the well, when we look at the story of, of the man by the pool of Bethesda and, and the things that needed to happen between there, the interactions, I started to think that at least when I looked at the, at the story of the woman at the well, my reflection was, I have something to learn here that I haven't thought about in the past, and that is how to look at the woman. You know, we always thought, or at least in my mind, historically, the woman was a woman of ill repute. She had five husbands. But, but then I was reminded that if that was the case, she wouldn't be there. She would have been stoned sometime. So the challenge for me was to th- see the person differently. And that's what I saw in Jesus as, as we were going through this particular series, uh, that what I saw in Jesus is that he looked at her as an individual, as a child of God, not as someone who had five husbands. So two words that, that kept on coming up beside uh, the one here of captives for me throughout the series and the times that I had a chance to listen were, were transformation and healing. So I wanted to look, where is the healing that took place there? Uh, I, I, I thought the woman got healed in the sense that she was now somebody in Jesus' eyes. There's healing that comes from being recognized as somebody special. And then I saw a transformation in her when she now had the uh, capacity to go back and talk to the people that she lived with and share the good things that she experienced. We have people who don't have that benefit, who haven't been seen as special yet. So there's this healing that needs to take place. But then... As I thought some more about who are the captives today, I started to think about the privileged. Those of us who have privileges, who um, are captives because of the, the, the messages that we receive. You know, if we look at the, uh, the caravan uh, of people coming from uh, South America, they're called uh, invaders instead of people of God. So that, that means that the narrative that we've been hearing is telling us something different from what we're supposed to believe. And, and for, for that, I want to take us back to the, the Genesis piece. They're not invaders. They're people of God. And they have a need. So those, those are some of the things that I've been thinking. The other word in terms of transformation, when I looked at, at, at the story of, of, of the, the pool of Bethesda and, and what the man experienced, yes, he, he experienced physical healing, but he also had to experience transformation. He no longer looked at life from the same perspective. He no longer had to wait for somebody else to care for him. He had to live a life of his own uh, so, so there's uh, that, that physical healing. Let me say a little bit about myself. I, I really didn't re- recognize uh, racism until after I finished high school. I grew up in, in New York City in, in, an integrated, in integrated schools. 
Yeah, there were a lot of uh, Hispanic kids in my neighborhood. There were a lot of um, black kids, but there were also, I remember, remember working with Germans, with people from other countries. We were integrated. So I never thought about racism until after I got into the workforce. And I saw that, that the, the people who were getting moved on did not look like myself, in spite of the fact that I knew a lot more than some of them who were moving along. Um, that, that's the first inkling of, hey, th- there's something out of balance here. Um, I saw it when we were buying our first house. I went to visit one house, and we had a nice discussion there. And before I knew it, before the next day came up, that house was no longer up for sale. I didn't belong in that community. Um, My brother, you know, experienced being stopped 11 times in one year during that uh, stop and frisk big era. Those are some of the ways that my family has experienced it. I have been privileged in a lot of ways. I've been able to get a good job. I've been able to communicate well, and I uh, got hooked up with Mennonites. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. (laughs) But um, racism is not new. You know, since the birth of, in America at least, since the birth of America, racial privilege and structural inequities have influenced our nation's policies. Our social systems, healthcare, education, you name it, uh, they're all influenced by this uh, racial privilege. We see it in the inequitable funding of the Pennsylvania school systems. And I was taken aback with a recent article I saw about a McCaskey student, and I may not have all the details correct, but who came home and told his mother, you know, the book that I got for studying has your name in it. The mother looked at it and said, that's my book. I'm wondering, what's the gap between the time she went to school and and the time her son went to school? There's an inequity there. Why should schools not have up-to-date books. If you look at the funding in in, in Pennsylvania, there's an imbalance from the schools that need it to the schools that don't really need it as much, they get the most. So that's one of the places we see it. I see it in the disparate way student discipline happens in schools where a, a, a white student gets a pass because, you know, he's just being a boy. Boys will be boys. If it's a black kid, they get moved to detention or they get moved out uh, to um, uh, a juvenile court, treated very differently. In job recruitment, uh, a reluctance to hire a person of color because, you know, 10 years ago we hired a person of color and things didn't work out well. But we don't say that when things don't work out well and it's not a person of color. So it's all around us. And the impact is real. There are social uh, consequences, as I shared already. Uh, it's not just to the person who's incarcerated. It's not just to the person who something happens against. It's to those of us who see it and allow it to happen because we're privileged. We don't have to think about it. 
Um, I think a term that, that, that I learned from Titus uh, when he was working on veterans' issues and, and, and some, um, some resources was um, moral injury. I think the difficulty we have in hearing about racism and the issues surrounding it sometimes is because we have moral injury. We know the scriptures. We know that we're all the same. We know we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters. We know that we're supposed to treat everyone with love and care. And moral injury is when we constantly do something that goes against what we believe. So I say, do we believe in the scriptures? And if we do, if we call ourselves Christians, why are we going against what we know and believe? I want, the end, I want to end this time with a more positive story. <laughs> um, and this is um, a story about uh, the, an East Coast staff. Let me just read it to you. Ron Muse, prison chaplain and, MC, and MCC East Coast staff member, shares Christ's peace with current and former inmates in Philadelphia and distributes prisoner care kits from MCC. Muse reflects, as we have started giving out prisoner care kits to indigent inmates, we have seen something happen that was not anticipated nor expected. Muse has noticed correctional officers requesting prisoner care kits on behalf of inmates, even those from marginalized inmate groups such as those with mental illnesses. It's amazing to see the inmates' face when the officer who has once, who, whom he once despised gives him a kit. It is almost like you can literally see the wall of animosity being torn down between the two groups. He continues, the touch of compassion that you see in the correctional officer's eyes and speech speaks volumes when requesting kits for the inmates It is like you see God working and moving in people's hearts without them realizing what is going on. Like the man by the pool of Bethesda, do we see the healing taking place for the inmate, for the correctional officer? Can we see a different perspective happening here for the correctional officer? like the perspective Jesus showed us when he met the woman at the well, the individuals are becoming human beings. Isn't that what we're called to emulate? Buenos dias. Um, for, we went back and forth a lot, but for the sake of time, decided I'm going to read what we prepared um, rather than translate. And as such, I'm speaking from my own perspective because it was very confusing trying to speak from both. Um, my name's Kara. I'm Bernardo. Back in 2013, uh, Bernardo and I were living in a safe, progressive Northern California University town. I had returned to college, and he was working at a taqueria near campus. We'd relied heavily on the privilege of my middle-class parents to pull us out of a very violent gang 
uh, controlled block of West Oakland where a double homicide had just occurred under our window. And um, back safe in Davis, we were renting a little apartment with our then preschooler and infant. It was an uneventful, unremarkable time in our lives together and as such sort of was a flashpoint of clarity after a lot of chaos. For reasons too complex to get into here at the time, our children's names were Jamie Davis and Beatriz Martinez. I had missed a well-child check for them and received two separate phone calls from the clinic. The first was a polite reminder to Mrs. Davis to please remember to reschedule Jamie's um, appointment. A few minutes later from the same office, I got a very condescending, decidedly less polite phone call from Mrs. Martinez, chiding me for for missing Beatriz's appointment lecturing me on the importance of checkups for my child's health, and then not so subtly informing me of the consequences of frequent no-shows, which would be that I would not be welcome to come back at the clinic. At that same time in our lives, Brenda and I both biked similar routes um, at similar hours, me to school and him to work. During the six months that we lived in that little apartment, Brenda was stopped on his bicycle by the police on four occasions, Uh, During those times, they never gave a reason for the stop, but they asked where he was going, and when he said he was going home, they asked where he lived. During that time, nor since nor before have I ever been stopped by the police while riding my bike or driving or walking or in any circumstances. Rude phone calls and random stops by the police are hardly grand injustices, but we could go on with examples of just one of us being humiliated at the checkout of a grocery store in front of our children, just one of us being asked for multiple forms of ID to make us a purchase, and just the one of us having our time cards at work altered multiple times to be paid under what we had earned. We don't feel particularly qualified to speak on issues of race or theology except to say that as a white woman and a brown man, we felt the ways that institutional prejudices become very intimate. Our most basic roles of mother and father and husband and wife are touched by a weird power imbalance that develops when one parent or one spouse can walk through life with considerably more ease. Out of necessity or safety or eventually fatigue, one person ends up taking on more public tasks And while big displays of injustice may spur big reactions, the day-to-day realities are quite mundane. They start to eat away at relationships in small ways that are hard to pin down by inspiring pity between us and frustration, and that turns into resentment that goes both ways. We know because we believe that God has a different vision. The passage in Micah that evokes the image of each man under his own vine with no one making him afraid is a promise that the power that we wield over each other in this life has no place in the kingdom of heaven. Without trying to sound trite, as parents of still small children, we most often are granted glimpses of the kingdom in the openness and selfless curiosity and and kindness of our children. Our hope for the church, the broader church and this church, East Chestnut Street, is that we will communicate openly and honestly now with the children in this congregation and in this community. We don't believe that children need to hear that everyone is the same, full stop, because we believe that children have the capacity to understand that people's lives are shaped by deep-rooted historical forces and that our children 
in our family know that even the adults in our family are not treated the same and don't have the same opportunities. We want our children to see adults in this congregation continue to grapple openly with injustice and racism.